0: So this summer, we're going through a thing called the Apostles' Creed. It's an ancient creed. It goes all the way back to first, second generation uh, Christianity. And we're about to read it. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, why are we doing this creed? Why are we studying this summer? You know, a creed is like a statement of faith. It's something that kind of gives us a, a deeper understanding of what the whole Bible is about. It gives us these guidelines, but really what I want to ask you is I want to take a vote and I want to find out which side of the most critical issue in our country right now you stand on. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and vote. Okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, the issue is, do you believe in Bigfoot? All right. <clears throat> so if you believe in Bigfoot, raise your hand. Oh, you're a bunch of doubters. If you don't believe in Bigfoot, raise your hand. Okay. That's really good. All right, so trust me, this has something to do with the sermon, all right? So I don't believe in Bigfoot. I know for the five of you that do, that's a shocker, all right? But here's what's fun for me. How many of you don't believe in Bigfoot, but you like watching those shows where they're looking for Bigfoot? Why? Because we know, we know no matter what's going on in the woods, it ain't Bigfoot, We don't know what it is, we just know it ain't Bigfoot. And so it's immensely curious to watch these people run around the woods trying to figure out what it really is when we know it's really not Bigfoot. That's a creed. Somebody want to close this in prayer? Let me tell you why. Because in your life, trust me, if you don't have this experience already, in your life you're going to face things that you don't understand. You're going to face things that are mysterious to you. And one of those things that you're going to face, <clears throat> that you're going to demand answers for, but for many of them, you're not going to get an answer for it on this side of heaven, and that's suffering. You know, suffering's confusing. We don't often understand why this suffering is taking place in the world or why this suffering is taking place in your life. And as Christians, we don't have answers to all the suffering. We just know what the answer is not. So the noise in the woods, we know it's not Bigfoot. All right, now you're making the connection that took way too long. Is that when I have these mysterious things happen in my life and I come to the creed, the creed reminds me, suffering's not in the world because God doesn't care. Suffering isn't in the world because God isn't good. Suffering isn't in the world because God isn't your father or that Jesus Christ isn't real. And so... It may not give us the answer of why it's there, but it helps us have confidence in what the answer is not. So a creed really serves as a foundation for us to stand on even when we approach the hard things to study in Scripture. You with me? So we're studying it this summer. So why don't we read it together? Join me in reading the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended, he ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. From there he will come to judge the living. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Lord, I pray that in this short time where we dive into your word and the gift of this creed, we stand on the shoulders of the saints that have gone before us, and we pray for courage, Lord, because... Um, Lord, it's easy to look at truth and to uh, step back from it. It takes courage to look at truth and embrace it and give our lives to it. Would you give us that kind of courage, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So we talked a couple of weeks ago, we started this series by talking about uh, belief. And if you remember, we talked about belief is really made up of three things. It's made up of uh, my head, what I believe. Uh, God has given us brains to work, but it's also uh, made up of our hearts and how we feel and emotionally engage, and it also is made up of our feet. And where these three things come together, we find what we really believe. And as believers, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're learning about Christ, we're having our affections drawn to Christ, and also we're giving ourselves by faith to the works of Christ. Then last week, we talked about God the Father and how God and his infinite wisdom and all his just endless uh, knowledge of the world decided the best way for you to address him as father. And today we're gonna talk about, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So we have three, let's get rid of Bigfoot, all right? He was good, he served his time, I know. So there are three things here. Jesus, Christ, and Lord. So you ready to dive in? you with me this morning? That 8.30 crowd, man, they were, they were slackers. Just dragons, so come on, stay with me. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is Jesus. And let me tell you what we first say when we say we believe in Jesus. Uh, Chad, stand up. <clears throat> Y'all know Chad? Yeah. You're looking good, man. Last time I had you stand up, I tore your shirt. I'm not gonna do it this time. Go back, watch the video. Um, Is Chad here with us today? Is this Chad? And he's real. Thank you, Chad. Super tan, that's right. He does have a tanning booth in his garage. No. The first thing that we say about I believe in Jesus is that we believe that Jesus came in the flesh. We're, we say that he really existed. He's a historical figure that came to this earth, lived on this earth, died, then rose again. We saying that, first of all, he wasn't a ghost. He's not a hologram. It wasn't like God pretended to be man, like in Mission Impossible, where he had that machine that made him a mask, you know, to mask that he's really God. No, we really believe that God became flesh. In other words. When he got tired, he slept. When he got hungry, he ate. When he got sad, he cried. When he was happy, he laughed. I mean, I would love to have sat around the fire each night with Jesus and the disciples. Because it wasn't just holy talk, you know? You gotta know they were cutting up all the time. And that would have been a lot of fun to see the personality because he had one, his sense of humor because he had one. And Jesus was so real that he actually died. He gave his life. He was one of us. But we can't just stay there. We can also say when we say we believe in Jesus, we believe he was a great teacher. And this is really a common thing in the world that we live in. It is almost impossible to deny just the genius of Jesus' teaching. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, even Gandhi Gandhi said that he uses that to, to train all his disciples And when we lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, we lived about two miles from Monticello, which you may know is the home of Thomas Jefferson. If you go and tour Monticello and you go into the gift shop, there is a Thomas Jefferson Bible. And what Thomas Jefferson did is he went in with a razor blade and he cut out all the miracles in the New Testament and in the Gospels. He cut out any mention at all to the divinity of Jesus because he wanted a Bible that just taught the lessons of Jesus, because he was a phenomenal teacher. He didn't believe in Jesus, the God, but he did believe in Jesus, the man. And I mean, think about it. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, can you imagine how our world would be different, how politics would be different if we all lived with that mantra that I'm gonna love you as I love myself? Unbelievable. Or if you study the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, I mean, come on. Like those translate to any place, anytime, anywhere and bring goodness or the parables. Like I love, Jesus had this, I won't put him on him. I think that Jesus has this really interesting sense of humor. You know, when he says, before you take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, take the log out of your own. Because if you don't, you're gonna hit your neighbor in the head with the log in your eye. Like this whole idea that Before I move toward your faults, I need to realize that my faults are immensely more than your faults, and I need to deal with me long before I ever deal with you. Imagine doing that in marriage. Oh, some of y'all like, can't do that. Or the unforgiving servant, the idea that a servant was forgiven great debt, millions of dollars, and then went to the streets and he choked out a guy that owed him a few bucks to help us better understand the forgiveness of God or the sower and the seed. He was an amazing teacher. So he was really human. He was an amazing teacher. But if we stay there, we miss the point. He was also an incredibly moral man. I mean, we think about this. He cared for the poor. He cared for the sick. He cared for the marginalized, the unloved, the outcast. There was no place that Jesus went that he did not get drawn toward those in most need. In fact, he didn't walk past the needy to get to the powerful. He walked past the powerful to get to the needy. Unbelievable, he never used other people for his own gain. He always gave what he had. He always spoke the truth. He always loved deeply, even when it cost him his entire life. When we say we believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus the man. We believe in Jesus the teacher. We believe in Jesus the moral juggernaut. And most of the world would say, stop right there. There have actually been books that have been written for centuries about the fact that that's all Jesus was. In fact, a couple of years ago, there was one that came out called Zealot. Maybe you've read it by Aslan and He writes that Jesus was actually just a revolutionary trying to mount up a new revolution against the Roman Empire. And he failed, and that's why he went to the cross. It's so common for the world to look at Jesus that way and say, we respect the fact that he was a teacher, he was a moral guide, and he was also just this phenomenal human that had a place in history. And probably they would even respect the fact that his impact on history was astronomical. But we can't stop there. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is with Peter, this is verse 13, when Jesus came out of the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, hey guys, who do the people out there say that I am? Like, y'all are in the streets. What's the scuttlebutt? What are they saying about me? And they said, well, some think that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some think you're Elijah, you know, because if you've read the story of Elijah, that's chariots of fire into the sky. He never died. He was whisked away with the vow that one day he's gonna come again. And at the Passover, there was actually the cup of Elijah that's on the table that nobody drinks because it's set out for Elijah who's coming back. Some think that you're still, others think you're Jeremiah. Or maybe you're one of the prophets that have come back to life. And then Jesus does what Jesus does and what he's gonna do today. He looks at them and he goes, who do you say that I am? That's the question for you today. Who do you say that he is? And Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That word Messiah actually could be translated, you are the Christ. And Jesus Christ, when we say that, we're not saying that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his second name. We're saying that it should be You are Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ. That one is his name, the second is a title. Christos, anointed one, the Messiah. So what does that mean that he's the Messiah? Wow, I almost dropped this. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. You ready? Here we go. We're going all the way back to Genesis 1, and what we find in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we find paradise. We find Adam and Eve. We find a world that is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced before. It is perfect in every way. Adam and Eve, eat, love, live, that was their life. And they were loving it. And in the middle of this story of beautiful perfection, they both had abs, it was amazing. (laughs) In walks evil. This snake enters into the garden. Now I gotta tell you, you know, I'm, this is a mystery for me. How did the snake get there? How did pure evil come into the paradise that God had created? Where did he come? We'll sit down with Jesus one day and we'll get the full details, all right? But evil shows up and here's what evil does. Evil likes to take what God has created. Evil loves to take what God has made beautiful and mess with it. That's why we often talk about that God loves sex. It's Satan who hates sex. Because look what Satan is doing to sex. He's doing so much to take what is a beautiful gift from God. And now he's made it dirty, untalkable. And he's been put in all these categories that are dark because that's what Satan does. But in this situation in the Garden of Eden, he came in and he convinced Adam and Eve, you think you got it good. You think you got it good. Let me tell you how you would have it better is if you would take charge of your own life, if you would step up, And take what God said you couldn't have and make it your own and plow your own field. So evil is trying to mess up what God has done because evil rebels against God. And rebellion always loves other rebellion to be with it. And Adam and Eve hear the claim of this evil creature. Don't trust God. Don't trust one another. Only trust yourself gets what yours decide what you want go after it and they did and when that sin happened something happened with Adam and Eve but also it happened with the world that darkness came into the world what was beautiful and perfection now was flawed and broken and maybe the way for us to better understand is that if i had a glass of water and i and i took one drop of like food coloring just one drop and dropped it down into that water, that one drop would not stay contained within itself. It would begin to spread until the entire glass of water had changed colors to the color of that food coloring. Or maybe a better illustration is if I had a glass of water and I dropped one drop of poison into the water, like deadly poison. I don't know what that would be. Doctors help me. And you drop this one deadly poison. And I say to you, hey, this glass of water is 99.9% nothing but pure water. And it's only one tenth of a percent poison. Drink up. You wouldn't because you would know that that poison now has contaminated everything within that glass. And that's what happened when sin came into the world It, it contaminated everything. If we are body, souls, and spirit, When when Adam and Eve sinned, the spirit of man now died. His ability to have connection with God is now dead within him. And it has poisoned everything and has brought death into the world that we live in. But right there in Genesis chapter three, when God looks at Eve with compassion, and you can imagine God taking her face into his hands and going, daughter, what have you done? And he says, wait, I'll deal with you in just a second. And he turned to this creature and he said two things. Cursed are you above all livestock and all animals. You're going to crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. Then he does something profound. He says, and I will put enmity between you and this woman, between her offspring between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What what does that mean? In that moment before God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, before he took care of the business, he had to declare a promise and he declared it to the evil one that one day there's one that's gonna come that's gonna crush your head. And when he does, you're gonna strike his heel. In other words, if you can imagine a deadly snake on stage and I crush its head. But as I'm crushing his head, it reaches around with its fangs and grabs me right on the heel. We both die. But there is going to come a day when there's going to be one that will be the head crusher. He's coming. So when I was a little kid, I had two brothers, I still have two brothers and, uh, Every uh, Christmas, our parents would take us down to this small little town that we grew up in to see the Christmas parade. And we, we would sit on the side, you know, bundled up, actually in shorts and t-shirts because it was Louisiana. And we would wait. And you know what we were waiting for? We were just waiting for one person. Who are we waiting for? Santa. Thanks for contributing. I know. And in our town, I'm not sure this is everywhere, but in our town, the high school marching band always went before Santa. You know, and they're coming in, you know, and just they're blasting you like a marching band does. It's just so you feel it in your soul. But we were sitting there, you know, the Shriners would come by in their little go-karts. And we're like, yeah, yeah, go, go get out of here. You know, and the clowns would come by and you're like, I don't want a clown. I want Santa, bring Santa. And then we would hear this. You know what that is? It's the... Uh, the guys on the snare drums that are marching in front of the band. And as soon as we hear that, we go, Oh, sin is coming. And then you start hearing, and you're like, Oh, and you just can't wait because you know he's coming. That's what Genesis 3 is. Genesis 3 is a declaration at the very beginning of the Bible He's coming. He's coming. So we read the Bible, and the first character we find is Abraham. And we're like, oh, Abe, he's the man. He's here. He showed up. And the Lord says all kinds of stuff to Abraham. Let me see if I can find it. This is in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 12. Uh, Oh, I'm not going to be able to find it. Um, Will you bear with me? Let me just sit down and see if I can find this. Ah, Okay. Okay, I can't find it. All right, but what he says to Abraham is he says, oh, Abe, Abe, I'm going to make you a great nation. Oh, Abe, you're going to be a great people. Oh, Abe, the whole world is going to stand up and marvel at the nation I'm going to build through you. Oh, Abe. And every nation in the world will be blessed by you. And we all go, ooh, head crusher. (sighs) Then Abe, poor Abe... They were promised a son, and Sarah couldn't get pregnant. So Sarah said, "Hey, Abe, why don't you take on a mistress? That seems like a good idea." So Abe, you know, took up with Hagar, and they had a kid. And it's like, oh man! And then they go flying into Egypt, and Sarah, she is one beautiful woman. And the king of Egypt spots her and goes, "Whoo! Got to make her mine." Abraham was so afraid that the king of Egypt was going to kill him that he said, "She's just my sister. She's just my sister." If it wasn't for a dream, he was going to let this guy marry his wife. And then we realized the poison that had infected us had also affected Abraham. He wasn't the head crusher. In fact, he was being crushed. But then Judah came along, the nation of Judah, and God said, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And he's going to come through you. So we waited. And then David showed up. Oh, you gotta go read the stories of David. I mean, come on. This kid was like the goat. Like he's the greatest of all time. He lived out in the desert, like think about that parenting plan. You're a preteen and I'm gonna send you in the desert with a slingshot to defend our sheep and we'll see you in a couple of years. And he goes, yes sir, dad. And he goes out, And he hears about this guy named Goliath and he comes rolling in and he's like, what are you guys so afraid of? I'll take him out. And there he goes, what makes you think you can take him out? And he goes, man, I have killed the lion and the bear out in the wilderness with my bare hands. I can take this guy. And he takes him. And we're like, oh, he's here. He is so here. I mean, come on. We're all going to be slaying the giants in our lives, just like David. (sighs) Then David had this little problem he had an affair, she got pregnant, then he, he murdered her her husband. I mean, come on. He had somebody murder him, all right? He didn't actually do it. Then we realized, no, bro, he's not the head crusher. In fact, his head's been crushed. He's got the same poison in him that we've got. Is there no one coming? And then here's, the, here's just the killer thing is that when David died, He passed his kingdom on to Solomon. You remember Solomon? Oh, man, Solomon, what was he? He was the wisest man that ever walked the earth. And he had a sex addiction, all right? Darkness. Then he had kids. And those kids, let's just say it didn't go well. They were power hungry. They, too, had sex addictions. They were murderers. They were thieves. It's bad. It's really bad until the whole nation falls apart. And the whole nation falls apart and people are losing hope and then God begins to send prophets. And what do these prophets begin to do? These minor prophets and major prophets and big prophets and small prophets? They're going, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And one of those prophets was Isaiah and listen to what he said. He said, let me tell you about the one that's coming. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. What? Not like David. He's not going to be attractive. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Really? Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. The poison is in all of us. And the Lord has laid on him all our poison. The iniquity of us all. Then the Old Testament's over. That's it book closed. You're like, what? Wait a minute. Until you open the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is here. He has finally arrived. He wasn't a good teacher. He wasn't just a good prophet. He wasn't just a good revolutionary. He wasn't a fictional character that someone made up. He wasn't just a good moral guide. He is the Christ. And in John chapter one, it gives us a picture of who this Christ is. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So get this, in the beginning, meaning before the creation happened, the word existed, okay? The pre-existed one. And the word was with God. Now get this, and the Word was God. Oh, wait a minute. The Word is God. And it says, he was with God in the beginning. He's talking about the Trinity now, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son preexisted with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the Son is God. And through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, lighting up the darkness, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's what we need to understand. The one that was promised is Jesus, and Jesus, get this, is God himself. That God came to pay for the sins of man. That God came now to consume the poison that has consumed us. And he declared it at the very beginning in Genesis chapter three, Hold on, I'm coming. I'm coming. In John chapter eight, because some people say, well, that's what Midtown believes or that's what the Presbyterians believe or, but it's Jesus who says in John chapter eight, I solemnly declare it before Abraham came. Before Abraham, Jesus said, I am, which is code word for God. This is what Jesus believed. In Philippians 2, it says, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, I'm done. Except for one little point. Lord, so let me just make two quick points and then I'll let you deal with this with Jesus, okay? The first is uh, God doesn't care what you think about him for him to be Lord. He is Lord. I mean, you just need to know that. There, As Abraham Kuyper used to say, when God and Jesus looks over the entire spanse of the universe, there is not one square inch that Jesus doesn't say, mine. That's mine. He is Lord of all. In fact, in Revelations it says there's going to come a day where where everyone, every knee shall bow and declare him as Lord because we will see him for what he is. Regardless of what you believe right now, there will come a day where all of humanity will kneel and declare that Jesus is Lord. That is a fact. It's a fact. But that fact has an impact on us right now. In fact, you can believe that Jesus was a man and you can believe that he is the Christ, the promised one that has come from Genesis all the way up to the cross and the power of the resurrection. You can believe all of that and still not know Jesus. The demons understood this. The evil one is not confused about who crushed his head. But there's no experience that he has with this living Lord. The invitation is ours today I think I can find this scripture. This is Romans chapter 10. Listen to what it says. This is in verse nine. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The poison will be crushed in you, and your spirit will be made alive and you will have communion with the God of the universe as we were intended to be. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Man, we should just stop there. You hear that promise? If you put your faith in Jesus, the Christ, who is Lord, you will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's that profound. Let's pray. Father, how can it be? What kind of love is this that you would You would knit generations and generations together. That a son of Abraham and a son of David, that you, Father, would come into this world. That you would become man. But more so, you would become our sin. That you would drink the darkness that has consumed us. That you would devour the poison that has killed our hearts. So that we can be set free. That spirit within us would be alive and then we would become the dwelling place of your Holy Spirit. How can this be? And with your spirit you bring abundant joy. Satisfaction and no shame. How how can this be? For those in this room that know how that is, Lord, would you affirm their faith? Would you stir their hearts with affection toward you? For those that don't know you now, Father, I pray that they would join all of us in declaring you, Lord. Confessing you, Lord. And know the life that you have for those you call your children. In Christ's name we pray, amen.